you're tuned in to the Neo Academy podcast. My name's Mark, and welcome to another episode of Neo Chats, deep dive conversations into the culture of education. Okay, welcome Jennifer Gross to Neo Chats. Thank you for being with us today. I really appreciate you making the time to um, to check in with us as well. And just um, for the people that might not have come across you, because you've got such an interesting, diverse, varied, extensive profile, um, could you just give us a, a, an introduction to you know to to who you are, what you do, and the route you've sort of taken to get there? Would be really interesting. Sure, um, and thanks for having me. Um, so I. I would describe myself as a designer, and I often use the language of engineer because I'm helping to build future learning systems. So I've spent my whole career asking the question and looking at how do we transform existing systems of education and and what future ones do we want to build and and implement. And so I started as a classroom teacher. I was always very passionate about learning um, myself, but also helping others and just understanding learning and people. Um, And then I, you know, learned all about research and how I could be a researcher in this space. And, And so I was always in my classroom experimenting with new innovations, new technologies. When I was in the classroom, you know, digital tools were really just starting to come online. Um, and so playing with that a lot, and I was very passionate about it, but really dismayed by, you know, I was teaching in suburban Pennsylvania. It, I should be able to innovate and do the things that were coming online and coming as leading edge. And it was really difficult for me. And I thought if it's hard for me, you know, what's happening in other schools around the world. And so I left for the classroom pretty quickly to go work more on that question. And and so I've spent most of my career um, as a researcher and a designer building digital learning technologies, spent a lot of my years at MIT at a research group called the Education Arcade and then the MIT Media Lab where I did my doctorate. And so always looking at innovation, looking at how innovative learning environments around the world are changing and growing and how they're doing that. What is good learning design? What are modern technologies to support that? What are policies and system structures to allow that to scale so that it's not just one you know, school's magnificent experience, but most kids don't have that. Um, and so curriculum and assessment ends up being a big part of that. So that's a bit why I have a varied background. In my experience, it's really important to be able to work across all of those aspects because they're all pieces of the system. And so you need to understand and work within all those to really make change at a systems level happen. Well, this is this is why I was so keen to talk to you because it's um it's um you meet a lot of professionals that are operating in their their pockets and their silos and they are often part of the conversation about wider systemic change but to actively be um, engaged in bringing it into effect or or pushing for it is is not your everyday occurrence I mean it seems like um. I mean, if I understand, you, you, you've kind of come up very early in your career against this sort of wall that, that, that you know, begs the question, why should this be here? Um, and your approach to this has been quite methodical, hasn't it? It's been a, let's take it from the research angle so that every, everything has an evidential basis because that's the world we're in. Um, and, and use that to kind of try to make the case. But in terms of at a systemic level, I noticed you mentioned things like curriculum and assessment and some of the more the, the language that might belong to the the traditional side as opposed to the you know a, a completely different paradigm of education and the, the big question is um 
is your objective to completely break down the existing structures and put something new in place? Or is it to affect some kind of shift gradually? And, and is that actually possible? Can we move incrementally to something completely different? Or do, do we at some point have to say, yeah, this has to go uh, and, 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 and do something more radical? Where, where do you fit in there? Yeah, all really good questions. So uh, I'll start by first saying that um, evidence base is critical and certainly uh, so is doing good research, but so much of this work also must come from practice and from reality. And so even in my own career, I sort of weaved my way in and out of the ivory tower of academia doing research, but always would go very quickly back into the classroom and real schools doing real projects in innovation and in trying to change their model. And so I think that's just as important that we really, I mean, research and theory does that, but so often policy and design doesn't doesn't look at that reality. And so the work that I've been doing over the last years, especially is about building structures to allow that ground up transformation. So to get to your, your question you're describing, you know, I would say that there's, we have to do both. So it's really disruptive to close doors and say, we're gonna close doors, shut down everything that was and start again. And we have good examples of that having happened in education. Actually, one of the best examples I know of was in England um, where they shut down a really struggling academy and redesigned it with the RSA and, and relaunched it. Um, and, and so uh, years ago, I think in 2013, I wrote a paper for the OECD project called Innovative Learn Learning Environments. And that paper looked at the, the spectrum, the spectrum. It's like everything from very incremental innovation all the way up to complete redesign, just shut it down and start over. And there's value and benefits to all, you know, anywhere on that spectrum. Um, most schools and systems can't just shut the doors and do that, but you get over a lot of the change management hurdles that you have to do if you, you want to get to a very different vision of teaching and learning, which is where I think most schools are challenged to go to today because of the global shifts. You know, it's a journey and you and that journey is the design part is actually not that hard at this point. It's getting everyone there together is the hard part. And so when you can do that sort of redesign and just build new systems, you get over a lot of those hurdles, but that's just not where most people are. And so I would never advocate or demand that that's what it has to be, um, that that's where you know, systems and schools and education needs to be. I very much understand that, you know, and it, we have a report about to come out from the WISE project I worked on over the last year. And we say emphatically in that project, in that report that the journey is the work. So it, because we have, we have pretty good evidence and ideas of mo modern models of teaching and learning, good practices, great examples from many innovative schools around the world. So it's no longer this wishful idea. We have a good idea of where we need to be going as schools. The hard part is that journey and you need to bring everyone along because we're all growing in our practice, in our understanding of what does modern teaching and learning look like? What does it mean to support these skills and competencies? How do I do that in the classroom? How do I know I'm doing that and tracking that learning over time. So we're all as a global community learning about this journey together. Um, so I would say, yeah, it's got to, it's got to be all the things. Yeah. It's an interesting way to do it because I mean, it's, 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 again, it's the, it's the research background, isn't it? I mean, it's just, so you're covering all the angles um, by mapping out the spectrum and saying, you know, if we're going to really truly meet people where they are and get the best from every possible sort of scenario and circumstance, then we need to map out and anticipate the challenges and things at different points. And 
Um, the interesting thing for me has always been, um, you mentioned from the ground up, and this is what I'm always curious about, um, because, you know, from the ground up, you've obviously got the, the, the challenge of going into the teaching and learning environment and connecting with educators on that level by saying, you know, I understand where you're coming from. I'm not in the ivory tower of academia. I, I do come from where you are um, and understand your context and, and try to um, bring people along with you. But then, of course, you will come up against um, a, a block at some point. You know, the people further up the chain who say this can't be done because it doesn't fit into my Excel or my tick boxes or there's some kind of um, block above me in the hierarchy. But then again, if you go straight to the top and say, here's all the evidence for systemic change, here's the impact, um, this is what you can expect, this is the impact, you know, communicating it in a way that makes sense to different um, types of people. So even, you know, okay, this is the impact on the economy, et cetera, et cetera, employability, whatever argument works. But then, of course, you don't have that groundswell um, because it's a top-down mandate and teachers have got initiative fatigue. Um, so how, how do you strike that balance? I mean, are you working simultaneously at both ends of the chain or? Yeah. Yes, yeah. yeah, so all great points and, and good questions. So, so yes. I do personally, and the people I work with often do as well. Um, I, you know, I think that me, we know that top-down change doesn't work very well. But I, you know, I would say too that part of the reason for that is we do a really poor job of designing <laughs> in education, right? So we 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 implement these policies, particularly at these higher levels, and then don't do a real analysis check on how did that work? Is that creating the outcomes and the, the context that we want? And very often we have idea, insights that it's not, and we don't change those policies. So uh, this would be my plea and call to everyone working at those higher levels to also be invited into this design conversation and thinking about the ways in which what they're designing at that level is impacting um, the sort of on the ground layer of education. And again, I would you know point to this report that we're about to put out from the, the Wise Innovation Hub is what I keep referencing over the last year. Um, we did a research study on this innovation lab as a mechanism within a school to transform the school. So this is work I've been doing for 15 years. We decided this last year to do that as an official initiative within Wise out of Cutter Foundation. And in that project, we very much talk exactly about this. So we we had several schools that said, we know we need to make big changes. We know we need to be more competency-based, mastery-based, personalized learning. That's going to require some real design changes, structural changes to our school, which is true. So they were all on board with that and they wanted to innovate. So most of the research was our project was looking at how to support them to do that. But the project very much also speaks up the chain, so to speak, in talking to the policymakers and system structures that are inhibiting that. And I would say, again, we have good examples, though, of, of where that's worked well. So in Massachusetts, they have their Innovative Schools Initiative, which was the state level saying, we know we're part of the problem. We're no, we know we're in the way. And so he, we're going to create structures to innovate, which is good innovation. You don't just haphazardly yeah. try stuff. You have structures, right, to test things to learn from that to and to make sure that there's some guardrails and so they put that in place and allowed the schools to put forth an innovation plan and therefore they would be opted out of some of the policy and, and testing requirements that often makes it really difficult for schools to innovate so i would say again 
we have examples of how to do this. The real challenge is sharing that knowledge and getting it in the hands of the people making these decisions and then really supporting them to take that risk because that's what it really comes down to. At this point, yeah. I don't think it's a knowledge gap in education. It's a, it's a fear gap. That's, I, I feel exactly the same. I feel like um, you get to this point and I, I've been there, even for example, in, in sort of teacher training, you know, I've worked with say university teachers, for example, to say, well, you know, who, who typically don't go through the same um, uh, formation of pedagogical awareness that you would in high school and primary school. Sometimes it's just like, well, you've got a doctorate and you go and good luck, all the best. And so working with these guys, you know, we, we did a lot on um, how to make things obviously more learning directed, more engaging, more active, almost the, the you know, the, the, the basics of um, sort of more progressive education. And we got to the end of it and they were all like, oh, this is fantastic ideas. This is amazing, but I wouldn't actually do it. And, and you got to this point where that, you know, so on board, uh, they saw great results in the practices and things, and it came to the implementation. And we had things like we talked about the tyranny of seriousness, you know, this, in, in academia that you, you can't simply let go. You have to be in control and all these, these blocks. And it was just so difficult to get past it. And I wonder, I wonder how you do get past that. How, because that, that's where we are, isn't it? As you say, I, I, I firmly believe that, I mean, look around us, the conversation in Scotland, for example, where I am, very much you know, nature-based learning, um, it's play-based learning. The curriculum for excellence is, is fantastic there have been a couple of scathing reports on the expression of those outcomes because we're not you know uh, because they're so open they tend to go in lots of different directions and there's not a lot of consistency but to actually kind of finally let go and say well it's up to the schools it's up to the teachers you've got this we're going to take some of the pressures off you and allow you to um, find your own way through this there's such a reluctance to do that how, how do you get past that well I would say in part, it comes from the work needing to be tailored to each context. So I work on all the major six continents and each each of those areas, even you know, of course, within all of those regions, it's very different. The demands, the mindsets, the culture, the needs. So I fundamentally believe that this work has to be done meeting people where they are, communities where they are. And so we have to design a journey for them for where they are and where they want to go. Um, so we have good ideas and tools and frames um, that can be used for that, but it's fundamentally a unique journey. Um, I think part of the challenge as well is that it's just so difficult to let go of some of our mindsets about what is teaching and what is learning. And it's really challenging because they're so, it seems like they're so ingrained at this point that it's so hard to let them go, even though we have so much research that shows some of the downsides of traditional teaching and organizational structures. Um, yet we, we, it's so hard for us to let go of that. So very often we encourage schools that, to not let go of it. We say, we're not asking you to give that up. I'm not asking you to not do that. What I'm asking you to create space to invite in some of these new things as well. So that it's an and, not an or. Um, but you know, it's it's really challenging. I think that this is the, this is the biggest piece. And so the more we can paint a picture of what this looks like um, is is really helpful for people to change. And then helping, I think, system structures. You know, we're going to see the pendulum swing back in that way. So what you're describing, mm -hmm. I would 
say is a bit like the pendulum swing we've seen in the 80s and 90s, where it was, you know, especially here in the US, there was really clear um, discrepancies between regions within our nation, the type of and quality of education. And so the design response to that was standards, was curriculum standards. Yeah. And what we didn't do, <laughs> and the reason I know we didn't do this, well, A, because I haven't found it in the research, but B, we still use them, is that we didn't design, assess them. So we designed an intervention and never said, how does the design of this intervention impact the way they're used and the outcomes we're seeing? And so I would argue there's a lot of downsides to the design of traditional curriculum structures uh, and standards, and, and that was our best approach, and we really didn't change it. <laughs> so, so yeah. you know, and we're seeing the effects of that. And, you know, so anyway, that's a, it's a, I could <laughs> go so much deeper into that, but just to say that, um, you know, we need to look at how we're designing on all levels and also look at examples of where we have created that freedom and autonomy and design control and what are the supports and structures that allow that to be done well. Instead of just saying, oh, that's a free for all, we can't do that. That's not the right response. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah, of course. I mean, the, there is a threat in replacing a structure with a vacuum or, or as it's perceived, you know, uh, I yes. mean, because we understand the perception is is, is critical it, you know um to me that the absence of structure is liberating but i didn't always think that way and i understand yeah. um where people might be on that journey but um it's interesting you talk about um culture and you talk about the unique context and demands uh, you know so the systems the organizational cultures the surrounding community cultures and all of that but there must surely be some red lines i mean what you know, as you adapt lots of different things to, to, to helping these schools to innovate and to progress and to change and serve their learners better. But what are the principles on which you will not compromise? Hmm, great, great question. Um, yeah, so at that same OECD project I mentioned, the Innovative Learning Environments Project, the first book that they put out in that project was called The Nature of Learning. And it was a meta-analysis on the decades of research about how we learn as humans and how we grow and develop. And from that research, can we distill design principles of how you might design learning environments? And so for me, I describe them as the first principles of learning. I think they're non-negotiables because it, this is simply what decades of research has shown us about how we learn as people. And then there's pedagogies that are built on top of those first principles that also have decades of research behind them, right? So project-based learning, um, student agency, um, active learning, these types of things, formative assessment. I mean, it's just so clear cut. And so for me, um, I won't say, you know, it, how that looks in practice of saying that's the hard red line always has to be negotiated because again, I see my job and the work that we do is I'm here to guide you. So if I, if a learner comes to me, a child and has this mental model that is not maybe the uh, you know accurate or adult one we're trying to get them to, we see this in science research a lot. I don't just say like, that's not, that's not correct. And just, and say like, you know, <laughs> I, we're, we can't do that. I'm bringing them on a journey, right? So, so, so in my mind, it's a hard red line. And sometimes I'll communicate that to the school community that we're working with. But so much of it is about me thinking like, what are the steps then that I can use to help get them to where we want them to go? They might not be ready yet for a student-driven environment, even though mm -hmm. all the research is clear. Not only is that fundamental, 
fundamental to good learning, but it's critical for the modern complex world that kids are going to walk into. You know, yeah. if, we're, if you're sitting behind desks and being told what to do, you really are not being equipped to manage your own life and the complexity <laughs> of the world, right? So, but yeah. for most schools, you cannot start there. Or the, I, they might get the idea of that, but like you said before, that's amazing. We can't do that. Yeah. yeah. So I'm always thinking about the journey that they need to go on. Yeah, it's. I think this is a great approach because um, the objective in the end is to affect change, and whatever we've got to do to get there, you know, because we can go in and say, "Here's all the evidence, and we need to transform everything and make it, um, you know, learner-directed, student-driven, all of that stuff." But it 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 will not. That seed will not germinate. Um, yeah. it, you know, unless you kind of pay attention to. I'm going to drop that analogy, um, but <laughs> unless you pay more attention to the context. Um, and um, it makes me think of, I mean, I think we're both connected through the Learn Life community in Barcelona, which is, you know, for me is schools like that and the, the new school in Budapest, green school in Bali, these schools that are, you know, way out there, they've taken away the concept of, of subject, it much more reflects real life. They've questioned what a learning environment is and where it is and when learning takes place and all of that. And um, to me, that's certainly the vanguard, but I can't imagine um, the majority of schools being anywhere close to that. And I wonder, I've always thought about, I wonder what your take on this. I've always thought about um, project-based learning as the kind of Trojan horse for change in education. I find that's, to me, that's such a great way because it's so, it's, you know, it's, it, there are documented, well-established kind of gold standard processes to help schools bring it in. There's ample evidence. It's becoming, again, in my echo chamber, it's becoming pretty mainstream, I think. Um, but yeah, all the principles of project-based learning then lead to these loftier ideals of, of student agency and student-driven inquiry and all that. Do, do you think that's right? Do you think PBL's got a good sort of potential to make wider change? Yeah, absolutely. And I think we see that. So there's a number of colleagues I would point to globally doing similar work of helping schools, you know, embed new practices, start their change journey. And I would say a good portion of them, that is their Trojan horse. That is their entry point for schools because it's it's a very contained, tangible, clear uh, and motivating way to get started. And so I think, and it, it is a good one. It's a really great pedagogy. And very often for a lot of the other structural changes of the school that we're advocating for to become a modern learning environment, PBL becomes a critical currency. It's a, it's a mechanism that, uh, that has to be a part of that design mix. So, you know, wherever, for some schools, it's, we know we need skills and competencies. That's not in our curriculum. We have to start there. Great, let's do that. And then they start to realize, you can't teach these things in a traditional <laughs> model. You yeah. need, you know, and so yeah. there's always it's there's different entry points, but PBL is a great one, and for a lot of reasons. And one of them is that we have decades of research on PBL. I mean, there's just mm -hmm. such an immense research base, and more and more tools to support it. So it is an often uh, a starting place we advocate for schools. And actually, one of the best examples I saw of that was in Scotland when the Curriculum for Excellence came out about a decade ago. Mm -hmm. And we were doing research uh, in schools all across Scotland. And the, the teachers kept saying to us, the changes in the curriculum, this new structure that had these larger sort of framings of a person on top, gave them the autonomy and the freedom to 
start to implement project-based learning. And then they see kids so much more engaged and yeah. staying in during research and so passionate about these topics. And so we often get, I often get asked questions about motivation and engagement. And for me, it's just such a perfect example of where the how the how matters so much of how you organize yeah. learning. And so it's the same content, but night and day in engagement and motivation because you framed it in a way that's meaningful and, and relevant to their world and, and, and a play space that allows them that agency and autonomy and to drive it within that container. And, and that's all the difference in the world. So, yeah. Yeah, I think that every, every teacher in the world will, will recognize, for example, the experience of having to almost apologize for content in a in a in a lesson if you want to call it that to say sorry we have to do this it's in the exam or whatever you know to be unable to sort of justify why something is there and and all of course to 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 have this um be, you're being kind of pursued all the time by this feeling of having to tick boxes and cover the content um and i i really detest that expression i've got to cover the content you know, um, because it is very, it's very superficial, of course. Um, but yet, moving away from that is very, very difficult, because you've got all, of, you've got to unlearn all of this institutional structures and the pressures you felt since day one of teacher training, and, you know, the weight of the peer culture around you and all of that. So you've got to unlearn it. PBL seems like a great way to, to absorb that experientially. Um, and I think that um, the energy you get from seeing your learners engaged and realizing that because they're so engaged, you have the time and freedom to, to be where you're needed yeah. um, as well. Uh, you know, I, I can completely get why this is such a great way to, to make the, the, the bigger steps forward. Yeah. Um, and I wonder, because you, you're very involved in, um, you know, you've, you've, you've written extensively about technology as well. Um, what, what do you think, what do you make of the moment we're in right now? Because it's, you know, it, it's just exploded in a way because of, I, I think, as far as I can observe, the the pandemic, the the push for even the late adopters to to kind of get online and, and use things like Zoom and whatever to teach. So even the, these basic first exposures to technology they might not have had before. Um, where do you think we are with the role technology is is playing in education? You know, what what's shifted, if anything, in the last year or two? Um, and, and, and where do you think it's going? Where do you see it going? Do you see people getting more ed tech positive? Are they fatigued by all the new initiatives? Um, yeah, it's a good question. And I think the answer to all of them is yes. I mean, it, we, we're gonna <laughs> see all of this, right? So the, the thing about education, and because I, I work globally and I really encourage, you were talking about echo chamber earlier and I really, and I understand that, you know, our systems of education are complex enough. It's, it's enough to manage what's going on in a local state or nation of all the policies and things that you need to engage with. But getting the view beyond that, I find to be exceedingly helpful and only more and more important as time goes on, right? And we enter into the 2020s now and the decade ahead and the changes that are going to be coming. Um, and so I think that's really helpful because for me, I think it's really helpful to see the way different people approach things, to see some of these global trends. And I think what we're going to see is more, even more diversity, more, you know, someone asked me the other day, where are schools today? What are they like? I'm like, 
how do I even begin to answer that? You know, because they're yeah. all over the place in a way, and they have been yeah. for a while. As as more and more school systems try to, they recognize all the limitations of our traditional model and find their way out of that and into a modern mm-hmm. education. So to just say that I think we're going to continue to see a large spectrum of um, new systems emerging, new practices emerging, and that's a good thing ultimately because it, you know we've had a lock state for so long in education of not being able to innovate or we've had these like leading edges which are wonderful but how do we get to the core and the main body the system changing which has been so difficult and so I think COVID helped shake some of that up and the downside of it of course was it only expanded inequities and made the existing inequities in the system even more pronounced of course it's always what happens Mm -hmm. Um, but also shone a light on them and made it really you know stand out even further for us to pay more attention to and look at how we're going to address that and i think it also invited many more especially here in the us you know we have many traditional public school systems here that's where most kids go to school and i would say by and large they follow a pretty similar model and and haven't embraced these learning technologies and and i think there was a oh crap moment of you know last march where they realized they needed to and so we saw a lot of school systems all of a sudden take a jump yeah take a leap and say oh we're going to innovate now and so just without even worrying about the technology just seeing them taking a leap like that and changing practice and trying it. And, you know, for me as an innovator, you know, always working and studying innovation education, I was like, yes, you know, that's, that's wonderful. And so that alone, but I think I hope what we'll continue to see is much more experimentation and design of learning technologies and the, or, and most importantly, that it's not the technologies themselves for the most part, it's how they're leveraged in a school model design. So, you know, we, Mm because we have so many wonderful learning technologies now, it's not that we shouldn't keep innovating in that way, but there's already so much to choose from. The challenge is organizing the design of them as a lever within the whole school model or the education system model to provide for much different learning experiences, environments, and ultimately outcomes. So that, again, it comes back to me, for me, the design piece more than the tech itself. It's really, how do you think of it as a, as a, you know, a widget on the dashboard that you're changing of the whole school model to create much different experiences. So for anyone listening, I hope that, you know, you feel encouraged to continue to experiment and and play with what might be possible because the the lockdown on our education system structures has been sort of taken off because of the pandemic. Yeah, yeah. It, it seems like a you always have this slight feeling of guilt whenever you find something positive in the pandemic, but that certainly was a positive thing, wasn't it? It's like, it's almost like the way that PBL gave um, educators or teachers that first taste of what could be and gave them that first step. You know, and this was the same with. With technology you are from one day to the next you've got to figure out uh, how to teach online and how to use all these different systems and what i loved about it was it it pushed um the education system or, or you know teachers to to almost embrace the the persona of the learner again yeah. and be and do it unabashedly so because that's the thing is it's part of letting go is mm-hmm. saying we're all learners and it's the perfect opportunity to, I mean, you saw all the time, I was, I was involved in a lot of um, supporting uh, teachers with uh, online teaching, for example. And I was, you know, shadowing in a couple of classes and stuff. Almost every time there's a learner in the room who's saying, oh, hey, you, you got to press this or you can do that or, you know, and, and they want to get involved. And it's the perfect opportunity to share the journey together, which is, is how it should be. You know, we, 
not just involving um, learners in a tokenistic way, but but truly embracing the fact that we can all learn from each other. It's a very good moment. I hope we hang on to it. Absolutely. And just to say something you said was so critical is that it invited teachers and administrators back into the mindset of the experience of the learner, which is everything to good design. So, you know, everything about designing new experiences, new environments, new school structures, new ways of being able to deliver better learning for our kids starts with that mindset and that perspective. So I just want to amplify that because I think it's we, we, we kind of lost that for a long time because we got so caught up in the policies and structures and requirements we had to adhere to. And we lost, you know, and then we wonder why kids aren't motivated or engaged. And we have to ask that question. If we are asking that question, then it means we are already not seeing from their perspective, right? And it's just, it's just pivotal, all of this work. So I, again, I would encourage you know, some of the, the um, uh, prototypes and pilots that we do with schools today is mini pilots where they'll take some of the most disengaged students or struggling and design a new pilot with them about how to organize different from their experience, how to provide them different pathways and do a human-centered design project in that way. Um, and so I, I just encouraging, you know, all of us to continue to see things from that lens because it's everything. It's their, it's their experience. It's their journey. We need to understand it how they see it. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I hope this um, this effect that we've had um, from the, the sort of temporary pause of the pandemic, I hope that part continues um, because it, it must have felt empowering to teachers to finally kind of be like, OK, I don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. And um, all of these things, all of these rules and regulations and processes and procedures that we were hanging on to were pretty much just in in back to basics. Let's ensure that education is the best it can be to serve our learners the best we can and however that works uh, mm -hmm. and from day to day we're learning and innovating and adapting and listening and shaping mm -hmm. and that is such a healthy environment my not every school will do that I mean uh, there will be environments that can't wait to get back to okay this, this you know <laughs> framework will close in again um, during the last you know in, you've had obviously a wealth of experiences out there and obviously some uh, interventions or collaborations or whatever will have been more uh, impactful than others. But what, what are the ones that resonate with you? I mean, when you think back on, you know, the moment where you were, you know, you were looking at um, an impact that a project you were involved in had made, could be on an institution, could be on a learner. What are the things that really stand out as being absolutely transformational where you were able, you were able to step back and say, this is the right path, actually oh, yeah. doing something that makes a difference here? Hmm. Yeah, it's a good question. I, I, you know, I think there's, there's a lot I could say. Um, I think there's so, there's so many new innovations, new practices that are useful, but so, you know, I would say the most critical ones are ones that invited um, schools to look at learner agency. So how can you begin to experiment with uh, the learners having more control and say, um, and then just from a practical standpoint, I think this innovation lab work that we've been doing with schools for me is really the, cult the culmination of all of the work that I had done previously um, in looking at how schools innovate, why some don't, how some change and some don't, and how do we, most importantly, you know, get to the future school models that 
everyone the OECD others are discussing is being so critical to provide kids the skills that they need to be able to manage in the complex world they're going to walk into. I think for me, this, this really is the most powerful intervention. It's, it's also probably the hardest one to implement and scale. Um, you know, we're looking at ways to help do that now. Uh, but, you know, it, and it's helpful to have an outside group like myself or, you know, the WISE Hub, the Innovation Hub to do that, but you don't need it. You mostly just need the mindset that we're going to prototype and try new things in some way. And, and as you pointed out, people, you know, we were already doing that to some extent because of the pandemic. I think what we, most of this work involves us looking at industry and, and other companies and organizations for decades have been doing this, structuring yes. innovation and purposefully. We've just not done a good job of it in education. And it's because we put so much structure and lockdown policy in our systems that it just inhibited innovation so much. And so yeah. for me, it's really about, when I work with schools today, it's about giving them that, that motivation and the freedom to play and try new stuff. And just someone else saying, it's okay. <laughs> that yeah. failed terribly. And that's wonderful that that happened because you tried it and we learned from that and we're moving now. There's momentum in a new direction. So embracing failure is part of innovation, but that's a really difficult mindset for schools, um, teachers and mm -hmm. administrators to be in, but it's fundamental to change and to innovation. And so I yeah. would say, you know, just helping schools get in that innovators mindset and that it's okay to play. It's not only okay to play, it's foundational, play is foundational learning, as you know, and it's foundational to change and innovation. So it's just starting to experiment in that way. I mean, some of these concepts might, might seem threatening to people, don't they? I mean, the within innovation, there's a possible alternative framing of that, that could be perceived as judgment because you're, you're kind of like, let's look at what's not working uh, so that we can do better. And people often hang on to the, this is a criticism of the status quo. So, but innovation is great because it's reached such a point where it's such a positive word. Um, you know, I find that the framing of these things really does help. I mean, play-based learning is another one as well. If you talk about play to, you know, to, to innovate and talking about creativity and, and letting go and, and natural curiosity and all that kind of thing, it seems like it's just, the world has just um, moved past all of this. It's, it's, you know, the world's continued to evolve. And the, the funny thing is when you talk to administrators or people who are working accreditations and they're talking about the reasons that there are certain, you know, um, gatekeeper roles exist is because we're trying to ensure that um, learners have the right skills for industry. But the weird thing is that the companies are saying, we don't want all of that. You know, we want people that can think for themselves and that can adapt and can be creative and can collaborate and communicate across cultures and can be empathetic and listen and all of these different skills um, that are not in there, um, that, that, you know, we're missing the point of what we think employability is sometimes as well. And as you say, I mean, um, in, in the corporate world, it's, it's all about, you know, design thinking and entrepreneurship and intrapreneurship and flat hierarchies and, you know, all of this stuff is happening and yet schools are just, just not reflecting it. Um, <laughs> and, uh, it it's, yes. a, it's a very, it's a very strange situation when you're, when you're actually being told, well, we're doing this to prepare people for work and it's yes. a serious business and that's why we operate like this. And I, I never quite understood that. 
<laughs> yeah, but but the gap is has never been more glaring and clear. You know, I think back in the early 2000s, we had here in the U.S. the Partnership for 21st Century Skills, which wasn't just a U.S.-based organization, but it was mostly companies here in the U.S. coming together and saying, "Hey, there's these broader skills that we need people to have, and you're not doing that in education." And so that was great. There was a big movement in that direction, but curriculum really didn't change a whole lot because of that. No. But no. what we're seeing now is a massive shift in industry doing a better job of putting handles to those things. So industry is getting fed up enough saying this whole <laughs> infrastructure is not working. Yeah. You know, we, we have a hard time finding the right people, understanding what skills they actually have. And then we plot their growth anyway, once they become an employee and how to better yeah. upskill them. Why does that have to happen once they get to us? Yeah. So there's this groundswell happening that's going to have a massive impact in K-12 education eventually, especially higher ed first, but eventually then later, you know, K-12, um, that is going to put more data and infrastructure around all of that where it's not, it's not loosey-goosey anymore and it's not wishful thinking. It's, this is what we're asking for. And I do think, you know, thank goodness, we're going to see some real shifts in standardized testing and the, mm -hmm. and the expectations around that because there's now better designs of how to support and map learner growth in these skills and competencies over time. It seems like also, I mean, that in in sort of more of the private sector education as well, there will be an impact on the bottom line, which is also one of the things that always drives change because you've got people like um, Google saying, look, we're doing our own thing. Here's the academy. Um, we're doing fully certified courses. It's recognized by all of these other companies in Silicon Valley. You don't need to go and spend and get into lots of debt to do a programming or coding course. Just do it with us and you're you know, you're going to walk into a job. So, um, you know, especially higher ed must be looking at that and saying, this is a real threat. Companies are not about to wait um, for education to catch up. I yeah. would, I hope that's what they're saying. It's not clear that they're thinking that yet, you know, and that's, <laughs> I, I try it and, you know, I don't focus as much on higher ed, but Certainly when I'm giving talks or workshops, you know, we're talking about that and how they can be on the front edge of that. Any, any organization, as we've seen over and over again, can be a participant and co-designer of the future that we're all going to co-create, or they can be gone as the result of not having done that, you know, and, yeah. and so higher ed is invited into that conversation. And I think what we'll see is some will always persist, you know, Harvard probably won't go anywhere, but, you know, it, who would have thought it, Google could become the new Harvard, right? All of that stands on brands. So yeah. Harvard's a really good brand. And that's why those degrees matter. But, you know, in my alma mater, MIT used to be the number one engineering school in the world. And it still is, I think, on some factors. But Olin College 15 years ago came along just next, you know, a few miles from MIT, totally redesigned curriculum and experience for the learners. And now they have a higher job placement rate of freshly graduated engineers than MIT does yeah. because they have the skills and abilities to actually do the work. I mean, yeah. not to say that the MIT graduates don't, but MIT graduates are typically um, trained in a very traditional manner, very pure math, pure engineering mindset, devoid of project-based, you know, context-based real initiatives. And so when they get out of MIT and then go get a job, it's like this totally different environment that's unfamiliar to them. And it's the real world. How crazy is that? Yeah. You know, and so yeah. just to say that, you know, there's lots of good designs and, and we are going to be in this situation though, where I think, like, like you said, that, you know, 
places like Google already have a great brand, but it's gonna, them helping to, to set up these new structures are also gonna help shake loose some of that pipeline that is not working yeah. so well for a lot of kids, so. Yeah, let, let's hope so. And let's hope that it, it, it ends up positive for, for the learner. Yes. In a way, uh, I, I do also feel like I, I mean, you said that it might filter down to higher ed and K, then K twelve. But I do always feel like um, I see more innovation at K twelve level than a, a higher ed. It seems like higher ed is just this. Yeah. I feel like it's just going to be this island in the middle, sort of yeah. you know going like this and saying the world is not changing. Um, that's yeah. the way it appears to me. Me too. Yeah. yeah. I don't wish ill on any industry, no, you know, no. but I've also spent a fair amount of my adult life at, at these higher ed institutions. <laughs> yeah. And yeah. there's a lot of downsides to their structures. You know, yeah. they, they, they don't largely train or focus their faculty on teaching and supporting good learning and their curriculum usually isn't competency-based. So, you know, they've gotten away with decades of, you know, having some of the biggest endowments and, you know, bankrolls that we've seen in any organization and on the backs of a lot of kids where they then have debt and or don't have the skills to even go out into the workforce effectively. So I also very much welcome them, you know, waking up and being part of this conversation and the redesign of, you know, what I described as more ecosystems of education rather than this pipeline model. So for, for people out there that are listening, um, that are, you know, they could be working in K-12, further higher ed, even, you know, you know whatever uh, area of it. Um, what, what comes to mind when you think about models or examples that people can look at of, hey, look at this, this is really working. I mean, obviously taking into consideration that contexts are different, cultures are different, but, but which examples stand out for you? It could be because of whole school models that work, could be because of particular innovations, could be particular applications of technology. What, what comes to mind? Yeah, sure. Um, well, you mentioned a couple of them already. So um, uh, Green School in Bali is a wonderful example of a school, the new school in Budapest, um, or real school, sorry, in Budapest. We we actually, when I was, I worked with Lumiar for a number of years, which is also a great model of school. Um, we helped the real school get launched. Um, and I think they're still using their digital platform, Lumiar's digital platform to support that. Um, Summit Public Schools here in the U.S. is a really great model. High Tech High has been for a long time a, a look-through model. Uh, you know, Minerva, that which kind of blurs the lines between secondary school and higher ed, which is great. Um, it, all of these models, though, are hallmarked by those uh, those first principles of learning that I mentioned earlier on in, in our discussion, and the pedagogies that are built on top of those. Um, so as a, a practical resource, that project, that OECD project has a 12 page, we created a nice design style guide so you don't have to read the 300 page book, The Nature of Learning, you can read <laughs> the 12 page visual, you know, graphically nicely laid out. So check out that, I think it's still on their website, Innovative Learning Environments on the OECD website. Um, and it describes those first principles and the pedagogies built on top of them. And that's really, you know, all of the, these school models that we've just discussed here are, are hallmarking all of those. And, and most critically, I would say, is on some level, there is student agency and direction of the, their own experience. So I, you know, I said that earlier, mm -hmm. I said it again, it's the biggest um, crucible I think that we need to be focused on is that yeah. ultimately if your environment is a passive experience for the learner where you tell them what they're learning and when, and mostly how, 
you are doing those kids a massive disservice for the world that they're going to walk into. And we see it today. I mean, how many, especially with all of the contentious, you know, beliefs and ideas about what's happening in the world, we've created a system where people expect answers to be linear and discrete. And one of the four choices that we laid out in front of them, there is yeah. no problem in our world that looks like that. And, and people are, we, you know, I call it a kind of hidden curriculum where the design of an environment, the design of a system has these other effects that we may not have intended or looked at. But for me, that's the biggest one. I, I could care less if you have gotten your A-levels in science or maths mm -hmm. versus do you have that sense of ownership and agency and I and an invitation to that complexity and not just I'm looking, it's either this or that, you know, it's anti-vaxxers or pro, it's all of these problems are much more complex than that. And do you think in that way? And yeah. so that 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 for me is what all of those models highlight is that they are teaching kids how to think and take and take direction of their own education. And for me, that's the most important curriculum of all. The funny thing is that a lot of the things you're mentioning there the people who who kind of left school at 15 to say this is not for me i'm going to find my own way a lot of the people that did that will have that same mindset they'll be able to tell you yes. yeah it's you know they, they'll document their very circuitous meandering path through life and they'll be able to tell you all the, the skills they learned and and you can see that adaptability from not being boxed in not not of course in every case but but you can see that. I mean, that so many entrepreneurs, so many successful entrepreneurs um, succeeded despite their schooling and not because of it, Absolutely. which is an absolute tragedy. It really is. Yes. Um, yeah, I, I still, even to go back to my own teaching experience, and I still remember teaching in a, in a business school. I was teaching um, a leadership course, social leadership. And my class, I, I realized they were just, whatever I said, they were just writing it down and no one was questioning it. And I started to do things like, um, and I think uh, we had a competition called the random act of bullshit, you know, where each class I would drop in a complete lie, just, just weave it into the narrative. And there was always a prize for the person that spotted it. Thanks. You know, just little things like that, just to get you thinking like, okay, um, question it. I mean, you know, uh, not everything I say is, 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 is true or correct. I'm a product of my experience and, and all of that. It's, to, to, to go through that unlearning process and to support people through that, I think it's one of our greatest challenges, isn't it, to, to unlearn all of the stuff we've gone through. Um, yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, and I think, you know, just to give a little plug to the group at MIT that, that I spent a lot of years with the Education Arcade, you know, a lot of the technologies and innovations that group has been building for a long time are meant to, to cultivate this kind of thinking. So, you know, you, I can sit and teach you about all these science concepts in a very linear way and, and explain to you how I have all the right answers. And again, you shouldn't question any of them. <laughs> or, you know, we, we, they, they create a lot of these immersive game-based experiences and environments where there's multiple perspectives tackling a problem. You know, one of the early innovations that the group made was called Outbreak at MIT. And it was about an outbreak of an illness on MIT's campus and looking at what to do. How do we handle this? How do we make sure more kids don't get sick? How do we figure out where this came wow. from and start to isolate it? So this is back in the early I think, 2000s. They were doing very prescient, yeah. In the group, but it's, I mean, it's, the thing is that's real science. So mm -hmm. that's we 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 strip down and sterilize curriculum for kids so that they can get the knowledge, which is now to Google's 
you know, click of the button. Absolutely, yeah. Versus understanding the the, the university president is going to have a different perspective about ha- how to handle this pandemic than you know your your student peer who got sick themselves, and or you know the the local official who came in with different data than the the university president had, and that's real world. That's real world complexity. That's systems thinking. That's multiple perspectives. That's reality. And so yeah. those environments allow kids to cultivate the, all those perspectives, that mindset, how to tackle a complexity of that problem. And that's mostly what's missing from schools today. And the, 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 the strange thing is that um, despite all the resistance, given the right opportunities to, to, to try this, there, I can't think any teachers in the world would not enjoy this, would not find yeah. it liberating. You know, I, I've tried to make the case with that. Um, I talk to, to teachers often about um, remembering when when I was a kid and you'd, you'd be lying there, you can't remember a fact, like what's the capital of this country or whatever. And you have a check in your encyclopedias and if the answer is not in there and if your parents are asleep, you're done. I mean, you're not gonna be able to sleep because you can't remember the capital of Madagascar or whatever, you know? Um, and that, so that, you know, there was a kind of sense of teachers being the gatekeepers of knowledge back then, you know? Um, and that is so, so out of date now. And if we're still standing there just expecting to convey information, if that's our, if that's what we're doing, and then we wonder why learners are sitting there disengaged and they'd rather look at their phones. And I mean, yeah. it's, it's yeah. obvious. It's, they, it's, they, it's obvious. Yeah. Yeah. And they we blame recognize, them. Yeah. They recognize <laughs> that this is obsolete, that this is not, yeah. you know, what's necessary for today's world. And I think one of one of the things, one of the models we talked about earlier, Lumiar, is a really nice model. One of the reasons it is is because all of the aspects of its design are all built on learning sciences research. They were really a front runner decades ago in this way. And one of the the ways they organize their schools is that the teacher, um, they call them tutors, is really not responsible for the content of the projects. So it's mostly a project-based school. They do use workshops and modules to like kind of upskill and fill in gaps of you know math tables and things like that, that skills that kids just need, but it's mostly a project-based school. And those projects get defined by the kids' passions, interests, and questions that they want to dig into, which is beautiful. And so they, they split out that teacher role into two parts where the teacher, the traditional teacher worries much more about the overall development of the child. Again, a good model based on learning sciences research, how, how you might think of designing a teacher, so to speak. And then the project could be about anything, right? I mean, kids come up with the weirdest and most interesting things that they want to dig into based on something they saw or a track that their head went down, their thinking went down, which is great. But often the teacher will not have expertise in that area. So, you know, robotics is a great example. It's a modern, very obvious topic that kids would be interested in today. I wasn't trained in how to teach robotics when I was in a teacher training program. And I was trained as a general, you know, elementary education teacher. So all topics. So what's beautiful about that, the Lumiere model is that it, it invites the teacher to not be that expert. In fact, it almost requires them not to be because they bring in an outside expert to be the master to run the project, which Mm -hmm. um, is a beautiful model because then it's the pressure's not on the teacher to have to know everything, which they don't have to know anyway, even if that's not how your school's organized. Any good inquiry-based learning, you do not need to be the keeper of all the answers. You need to be the gardener. You need to be the one tending to the garden to make sure that the roses bloom, right? And that's good inquiry design. That's all that's required. You don't have to know about the topic at all. Um, it's actually that, stronger because I think that the co-construction of knowledge 
is so much, um, it sticks more Absolutely. when it comes from an authentic place. I mean, as, as teachers, we've often simulated this almost by the process of elicitation, which is definitely not co-construction. Um, but when you're genuinely learning together and piecing together your framing of, of the concepts, it's such an incredible thing. And it, but it's, I guess for teachers, it's about learning to be comfortable being uncomfortable, you know, to be, to be okay <laughs> with not knowing the answer. Yes. Um, and that, 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 that's a challenge. It is. It is. <laughs> yeah. And that is their, their learning curve or their growth curve, you know? And I think when I, when I work with teachers, especially the veteran teachers who've been in the schools for like 30 years, and they'll say to me, we're going back to where we started or why I started teaching, you know? And so yeah. I think this type of teaching learning resonates with every, everyone because it, it's innately reflective of our own curiosity and our own ability as learners, as humans, it's built into us. And so I, but for a number of teachers, it's never been comfortable because it wasn't, you know, supported or encouraged. And so it is that, that helping them get back to the familiar and, and feel like it's safe to, to be that uncomfortable and unknown. Yeah. Well, just a small challenge, I guess, but, <laughs> but it's, 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 as always, it's super encouraging to know that there's people like yourself out there um, fighting the good fight, you know, doing this work. Um, and I wonder just to kind of, um, to put that out there to people listening um what is it that you can do for for institutions you know and how do they get in touch with you what is it you actually do because it sounds um to people listening they might think well jennifer clearly does everything but there must be <laughs> certain areas that you focus on i mean what is it that you offer for institutions principally yeah. Yeah, um, there's lots of ways I engage with organizations. At the school level, it can be anything from designing their innovation approach and, and designing their you know, forward-thinking school model to helping them build their own innovation lab internally is the way that they're going to keep innovating and, and going in that direction. That's most of the work I do um, today. But I also advise on curriculum, policy work, all sorts of stuff. So the easiest way to get in touch with me is my email, which is uh, just jgroff at media.mit.edu um, or my website learningfutures.global. Um, you can also find me on Twitter and Medium and all the, the common places. So <laughs> everywhere, yeah. <laughs> well, I really appreciate you taking the time to to chat with us today, and I think that you know it's given people out there definitely something to think about. We've covered a lot of ground today. Yeah. Um, and I know that I should be thinking critically, but I can't help agreeing with everything you've said. So <laughs> <laughs> very good. Yeah. Trying to disagree, but no, it's just, it's just not in me. So um, yeah. I think it's um it's really nice to have the perspective of um it's like I was saying to you earlier, you know, I'm I am i am definitely in my echo chamber and you 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 put your head up every now and again and you think, well, why are why are things still the same then you know so the thing that sticks out most from today's discussion was about there no longer being a knowledge gap but a fear gap yeah. and that almost um helps me refocus my energies on that process which would be um supporting um not making people feel judged meeting people where they are working with 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 whatever context you can um, taking things incrementally where you need to, um, I think it's a really good, a really good message to people who are out there trying to affect change because sometimes we might get a little impatient. Yeah. And, and just to say the fear is real, you know, it's not that 
I, I don't think it's founded in some ways. We, we have real kids in front of us every day and real parents who may not, may or may not agree with some of the changes that we're trying to make. So it's real, but just to say that, you know, I often say to schools, not changing is not an option at this point. So, so how, the question I always ask everyone to reflect on is how can you create more ways to play with these ideas? Play is a way that, you know, fear instantly paralyzes all of us and play gets us out of that. And so none of this has to be implemented tomorrow. You don't have to in your head, design a new structure of how your school's going to be. In fact, I don't want you to do that because the first design is usually not a great one. So the question is, how can you just play with some new ideas and new innovations to support your kids and just say, what did we learn from that? Have you ever written anything specifically on that for educators, consultants, whatever, you know, who are, who are doing similar things to what you're doing um, to help them with those? It's almost the behind the scenes process how to approach things, how to make things non-threatening, how to frame things, even right down to the language to use, the steps you can take, and, and coupled with your um, the documentation you have of the, the spectrum of change would be a very powerful kind of toolkit for making change. Is that, is that something you've already written? Yeah, uh, yes and no. So I have a book in process uh, that is on that. So, you know, I did not know that. And just for yeah. everyone out there, that sounded <laughs> okay. like the, 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 the I haven't, total I haven't setup. Talked, <laughs> yeah, I haven't talked about it much publicly yet, but I, because I get this question a lot that we yeah. decided to put together a book. So there'll be more right. resources coming, but also just to say um, that WISE report that I mentioned, the WISE Innovation Hub, will have a little bit in there about that, at least some ideas of what this looks like in practice. That'll be out, I think, in the next month or two. Um, so I can send that along to you and, and hopefully you can get it out to your listeners once that comes along. Um, and I also have a series on Medium called Reengineering Education. Um, and there's a post in there that talks about some of these practices. It, it talks about all levels of the system. So a lot of the ground we covered today, a little bit more on the upper parts of the system, because I think they're the parts that we need to be looking at how we design those a little bit better at this point. Um, but there is some, some material in there as well, which I recommend checking out. And I'll try to put some more up soon so that um, people have more resources they can get their hands on now. Oh, you've just given me homework. That's very traditional education <laughs> of you. Apologies. <laughs> no, I gave you lines of inquiry. It's up to you. Oh, to okay. Okay. Lines. Fine. Okay. Yeah. Right. That's fine. I'll do that. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Uh, thank you so much, Jennifer. Really, really got so much out of this today. And I'm sure everyone listening did too. And super appreciate all the work you're doing and for the resources, all the suggestions, and just um, helping me to regather the energy again to get back out there and do what we do. So thank you so much. Uh, thank you so much. And thanks for having me today. It was a great conversation. I enjoyed it. Okay. Thank you. Take care. Thank you. See you. Bye-bye.